Sarah Roberts is in jeopardy. Hey, lady. How about it? Stay with her. Help her. For she has begun to feel the awful horror of the hunger. John Blaylock. The hunger has given him everlasting life. Until now, pray for him. Miriam Blaylock. She feeds one day in seven on the unsuspecting, and soon she will turn into something that you will never be able to forget. No matter how hard and how long you try, fear her. What have you done to me? Forever and ever. And life signs terminate right here. beauty of Catherine Deneuve, the cruel elegance of David Bowie, the open sensuality of Susan Sarandon, combined to create a modern classic of perverse fear. Mysterious, sensual, strange, perverse, riveting. The Hunger. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Ornate Stairwells, a new podcast uh, about movies. Uh, I'm going to take another run at that. Okay. Hi, everybody. I'm... uh, Taking one more take, and then this is the last one, I promise. <laughs> this better not turn into... When, when we recorded Swim Fans, uh, Craig tried to do an intro bit and like literally laughed over every single line that he wrote. Um, it took us like 15 <laughs> minutes to get through it, and by the end, it was just all of us being like, you can do it. I believe in you. Like, take a deep breath. You can do it. <laughs> the, so the first one was, no, I thought of something funnier to say. And the second one was... Well, I just did a different intro that time than the one I was <laughs> intending to. <laughs> Hi, everybody, and welcome to Ornate Stairwells, a brand new podcast all about images in sequences, sometimes with sounds associated. Uh, I'm Autumn, <laughs> and I'm joined by Nia. Hi, everybody. Um, should we explain what this podcast is? Um, I. What is this podcast? So, you and I have been hanging out and watching movies lately. Yeah. And we just have noticed in every movie we've watched, there's always a scene where somebody is, like, walking up a very, like, beautiful-looking staircase uh, mm-hmm. and and thinking about all the hardships in their life. And we're like, well, what if we did a podcast about that (laughs) yeah or sometimes they're going down the staircase and Mm -hmm. then often like tumbling because they are in like some moment of tragedy and yes if you're ascending the staircase you're about to make a very like grave decision that will have great import on your life and if you're walking down the staircase a decision has been made and your life is like falling to shit (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> the the going up the staircase is knowing the tragedy awaits you and having to confront the tragedy that awaits you as you go up the staircase. As you go down, the tragedy has happened and is still occurring. Like you're still dealing with the fallout of it. Yes. This are, these this, are the two types this of is, scenes. Yeah. This is what movies this is this is the heart of movies. Is ornate stairwell, so that's why we named it this. Literally every movie we've watched together has had like somebody on a stairwell being very <laughs> pensive. <laughs> I just I know that like I think you watched um Tokyo Drifter because of me and I feel like we should watch that cuz I'm I'm recalling mm-hmm. I don't know if it's actually in the movie or if it's just a poster. There's this like very iconic shot of both of them on a stairwell, like on like a set of like a staircase. Um, and I mean, one, like those boys are fucking, but, um, those boys are fucking, yeah, it's also just, it it keeps happening. This is what movies are. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So (laughs) you and I were talking earlier about like, so like, I guess like I don't want to spend too too long doing like intro stuff. I kind of want to just talk about the movie, but this movie's pretty light and so we can do a little bit of intro stuff. Yeah. Um people who know me from other podcasts have probably heard me talk about like being like a super mega film guy as a teen. And like the thing that I was talking to you about earlier is that when I was a super mega film guy as a teen, I was like reading you know, like Film Crit Hulk and Devin Faraci and Movie Bob, like three people that I hate now, <laughs> and three people who are very like, oh, the narrative structure and the character arcs and the the writing and you know, screenwriting. Like Film Crit Hulk literally sold me a book about screenwriting that is no good. Um, <laughs> And then a lot of the people that I'm friends with now do a lot of, like, very, like, thematic and, like, sort of, like, politically oriented criticism. And that is, like, what I lean to a lot. But the thing I was talking to you about is that that's just not how I watch movies. Like, movies specifically. Um, And you and I watch movies the same way. And so we decided we would just do a podcast that's just, like us watching movies and talking about the ways that we watch movies. <laughs> yeah. Um, I can give a little bit of background too, because like one, this is something that I gave for like the welcome to ghost divers. And yet I think it applies f- far more here than it like has really shaken out as applying to ghost divers, which is that I like my undergrad was digital cinema, like focusing on making movies. Um, and then my, while I was doing undergrad, I was taking like some film studies classes and I was like, I actually just really enjoy talking about movies and like writing about movies. And so then my graduate degree, like my master's is in cinema and media studies with like a specific focus on Icelandic cinema. Um, and like a lot of my background comes from like two specific schools of thought when it comes to movies which i think will probably come through on this podcast um which one is just like a uh like approach to movies that is looking at like what is the like this is like the national cinema stuff like what is the actual context around this film um like historically and in terms of like what country is this coming out of and all of that um 
which is definitely something that I think I bring a little bit more to Ghost Divers. But the mm-hmm. other part of it is just this like very formalist reading of movies where it's like, like my thesis has like an extended section where I talk about literally just two shots at the beginning of the movie Angels of the Universe that are like two shots that are just like, it's literally like the Icelandic countryside and then the Icelandic city. And I talk about it for like at least a page or two. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's because like, Formalism is specifically just about like, okay, like there are these formal elements of film. It's just like the images, the sounds, and like the way that those things are like colliding and and interacting with each other. And that's like what creates the experience. Um, And there are aspects of formalism that like I kind of get bored of (laughs) sometimes. (laughs) Um, But I do think it like it gets at the heart of what I find really exciting about um films in particular which is just like the erratics of cinema just the like there are images that are happening on the screen and like these images and these sounds are just like hitting me and i'm having like an emotional reaction to it and that's being constructed Mm -hmm. by just like literally the images and the sounds themselves and that is more important to me than characters or plot which is very different than like a 50 episode anime where like yeah i'm going to learn the characters names i'm going to be invested in like the the changing plot whereas a movie i'm like just give me those images just like (laughs) let me let me feast on this yeah appropriate for our movie (laughs) One of my favorite episodes of a podcast that I've ever done is an early Ars Arcanum where where Mark, Nora, and I like really just drill down into what is the agricultural economy of Elantris. <laughs> um, because when you're reading a novel, there's the sort of space for those sorts of things. Like yeah. um, when I'm watching a 90-minute movie... That's just not necessarily... I'm just not here to do that sort of work. Um, Like, and I think I'll... I think we're going to end up talking about some of that sort of stuff. Uh, Like, more thematic, more, like, cultural stuff. With The Hunger, and with any movie we cover, but, like, it's not the biggest thing that I enjoy about, like... I'm watching a movie to be entertained, and so I don't always, I'm not always, like, engaging that part of my brain. Um, I remember, like, at the tail end of, like, the years as a teen where I was, like, wanting to be a film blogger, the thing that I was rubbing up against was that, like, the sorts of, like, really bad critics that I was engaging with um, just had no space for formalism. And I remember, like, I had a week where I watched um, The Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth both literally every day. So, like, I watched both of those movies seven times in one week and, like, was just thinking a lot about the ways that Guillermo del Toro, like, uses color to communicate things in those movies. Yeah. And... I remember this week so well because I was trying to write about those things and I had no language for it because, like, it's just not the thing that, like, growing up being taught to write about movies by reading blogs about movies, like, it's just not in the sort of skill sets that those that those sorts of people had. <laughs> um, But it's what I'm interested in. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it's also... There's like a certain degree to me, part of why 
why I found writing about film and like trying to do this as an academic thing for a while. What excited me about it is I think like, like people listening to this who may not have listened to Ghost Divers because it's fucking long. I understand. Um, I'm not going to apologize for it, but I understand. But like they may I'm have listening heard... to the Eva episode right now, and they're <laughs> fucking good. So, <laughs> but like they may have also heard my guest appearance on Hot Singles, mm-hmm. and. There's the whole like adage that there's various versions. It goes back in time. It's been attributed to lots of people, but that like writing about music or talking about music is like dancing about architecture. And for me, like really trying to get at what is it that is exciting to me about cinema and what do I actually care about with cinema is the same kind of thing where it's just like, there's just like an aesthetic experience that I'm having watch- when I'm watching a film. And then when I sit down and have to talk about it, it's like, just sit and look at the film. Like, why am I talking about this? <laughs> right? <laughs> Just, like, listen to the music. Like, um, and a lot of my favorite films, I think, like, I think of Sonatine, which I think is my favorite film, as, like, this is a musical experience in some degree, even though it's not, like, directly one-to-one music. Um, like sonatine is even a musical term. And I think that's intentional because there's like, there's something that it is doing that is playing with, um, just like images and sounds and, and forms and symbols in this way that is like somewhat beyond like a linguistic way of talking about something that like reminds Mm -hmm. me in some way of, of music. So, um, that's part of what I find exciting about talking about cinema. Um, I, it was the part that I really loved when I was in grad school and it was all of the other academia shit that I hated. <laughs> so, <laughs> but that's really now, now I can just do a podcast. <laughs> it is really funny that like hot singles is a podcast where once a month I have a meltdown because I am incapable of giving myself over to just like a totally like aesthetic experience of music without like intellectualizing it. And then the mission statement of this podcast is like, no movies are aesthetic experiences. Stop being so intellectual about it (laughs) or not stop being so intellectual about it. But like, like movies are aesthetic experiences first and you should like, have your gut reaction to the movie before you try to have anything else with it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um. Anyway, so we watched... Do, do we have any other intro stuff, or should we just talk about the fucking movie? <laughs> um, yeah, I don't... I mean, I have, like, my bit, but that can happen at any point. <laughs> I... Let's talk about the movie and then let's do your bit. Or you just, <laughs> whenever you feel like it's appropriate, you can spring this bit on me. All I know is that you have something. All I know is that you have something planned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. So the hunger. Um. The hunger is a 1983 uh, erotic horror film. I'm reading from Wikipedia. The Hunger is a 1983 erotic horror film directed by Tony Scott, um, starring Catherine uh, Deneuve, uh, David Bowie, and Susan Sarandon. Um, If people are not familiar with The Hunger, which I wouldn't blame you, um, basically it's a movie in two halves. In the first half, uh, like... David Bowie is a vampire who is, like, getting old and dying... Um, and Catherine Deneuve is a much older vampire who is not getting older and dying, and 
dealing with like eternity not being forever basically and then the second half of the movie is about susan sarandon and Catherine deneuve fucking uh that's basically yeah. it that's basically all that happens. um i feel like we're not gonna have very in-depth synopses on this podcast in general so <laughs> this is an exceptionally hard movie to synopsize though i will say yeah. um <laughs> it's also because it's like if you're like trying to do a synopsis you're like okay so like susan sarandon is like the scientist who's studying um i forget the name of the disease but the one where like children age rapidly basically Mm um and there's like stuff with monkeys and most of it is like but basically it's just tying into this whole like vampires and then you reach a point where suddenly you get old and die um or it's like that's what happens to to david bowie so um like even that just feels like this is just like an evocative thing that they are pulling in as like oh here's this like actual disease that exists and we're going to like uh play up what's happening to david bowie as like an even more extreme form of this in some Mm -hmm. ways um not in a way that's like this is important plot detail but just like oh more aesthetics (laughs) (laughs) um this is a very aesthetic movie the like entire first section is literally just like a montage it's just zigavertov out here uh listening to bauhaus and yeah like cutting something together to bauhaus um vertov got really into vampires (laughs) there's there's like a fucking so the opening sequence is um David Bowie and Catherine Deneuve uh, in, uh, forgive me if I'm not saying her name right, I have no idea, I'm not good at names, Um, David Bowie and Catherine Deneuve, like, in this nightclub, and, like, David Bowie, like, nods at this guy in, like, the most cruising way you've ever seen in a movie, and then, like, they go back to... um, the high rise that David Bowie and Catherine Deneuve live in. And it's like, Oh no, it's the two couples hooking up because apparently the guy that David Bowie was nodding at was with another girl as well. And like now these two couples are fucking, but like, it's, it's just like David Bowie is cruising in the start of this movie (laughs) yeah, (laughs) while listening to Bauhaus. (laughs) Um, and it's just like yeah, cutting back and forth is... between that and like monkeys screaming because, you know, like the animal instincts of, you know, wanting to fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it it is a lot to um like it's just quite the intro. And it <laughs> it, it like really conveys something to you about what this film is going to be. Um I uh, maybe I'm going to spring the thing on you now because I'm about to make a joke. Um, okay. <laughs> so, a thing about me that I don't think you know yet, Autumn, is that often when I'm about to watch a movie, like an older movie for the first time, one of the first things that I do is I go to Google Scholar and I search mm-hmm. for the movie on Google Scholar. <laughs> um. I do this not because I'm, like, going to immediately read a bunch of scholarly articles, but because I like to look at abstracts and get some sense of, like, what is it, especially the, like, more highly cited 
papers that are mentioning this movie like what are what is the academic thought on this seemingly revolving around mm-hmm. so i did that with this movie and i fell into a hole um and i'm just gonna send you okay let me so i just have two screenshots that i took here um Just sending them over on Discord. So, sorry to subject you to Pride Discourse. (laughs) (laughs) No! Um, So, the first one that I came across, the name of this is Bisexual Erasure and Lesbian Vampire Film Theory. Um, I'm going to read the abstract here for, for our dear listeners. Lesbian vampire theory operates within the matrix of feminism, queer theory, and horror studies. Bisexuality is a strained relationship with queer theory, and Christopher James provides a compelling account of how bisexuality has been appropriated by queer, lesbian, and gay theory. No. So, I'm just going to, like, a quick pause and be like, bisexuality being appropriated by queer theory. Okay. <laughs> just deep breath. We're, we're bringing a lot of baggage here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm not going to read this whole thing, but I, I, I'm going to include this next one. The strategy James terms appropriation without representation occurs when theorists do not include bisexuality as a sexual orientation in their analysis, yet they lab- label characters that behave in bisexual ways as gay or lesbian. Um, and then basically he's talking about lesbian vampire films in this film in particular, and how people call it a lesbian vampire film. Um, I ended up so this is the thing where I fell into a hole. I was so like uh upset <laughs> or mm-hmm. like uh horrified by this being like one of the most cited articles about this movie that um I actually did find a copy of the article and started reading it. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, I just sorry again, sorry to subject you to this, but like this is apparently what some of the discussion around this film is like. And I'm just like, I, I really like the, the distinction that this author is making between bisexuality and queerness is one that I am not interested in being made. And that honestly had like weird turfy vibes to it to me. Um. Yeah. So, (laughs) okay. This, this article is published uh, in 2013, which is a full, 40 years after the movie comes out? Am I counting that right? Yeah. Um, Um, Wait. Yeah, 40. I'm bad at math. You're you're the math one. (laughs) I have an undergrad degree in mathematics for some fucking reason. Um, (laughs) So, (laughs) the, the thing that we talked about when you were on Hot Singles was like, there is a temptation to talk about Lou Reed's gender and sexuality in sort of terms that make sense to us in 2021. And like, I think we should push back on that because like, um, people described things differently in, you know, 1972 than they do now, you know, people described those sorts of things. Uh, so that all applies here. And I think it's important to remember that like Tony Scott, the director of this movie is gay um and and we were we were doing this research while we were watching it this was like at the very beginning of aids being a thing that mm-hmm. especially tony scott being like definitely 
the images that they are using, I think, are referring more directly to, like, heroin use, but I... I don't think it would be completely out of the question to be like, this is also touching to some degree on AIDS. Um. I, and so the, the the reason that I call this a lesbian vampire movie, like if we could just like, you know, just be like explicit about what the text of the movie is. Um, Susan Sarandon is married to a man and then has sex with a woman one time and can't stop thinking about her and can't stop thinking about first, how great sex with women is un- to the point where she kills her husband. <laughs> first what looks at the woman and then becomes so obsessed with the woman that she then yes. goes to have sex with the woman. <laughs> yes. She looks at her one time and then the next time she's like not even having sex with her husband, just in bed with her husband, is trying to convince herself that she still loves him. Yeah. That's what happens in the movie. That's why we call it a lesbian vampire movie. <laughs> and then she goes back to the woman and is intentionally not wearing a bra, apparently, uh, is wearing uh, a white t-shirt um, that she, of course, had covered up, but it now has taken off the suit coat so that, you know, tits are on full display. Um, yeah. And then, oh, oops, I accidentally spilled some red wine on my shirt. Guess I'm going to have to clean it and take it off. Um, first I'm going to ask you are you making a pass at me and you're going to playfully deny making a pass at me and then oh no I guess I have to take my shirt off now (laughs) like are you making a pass at me is a great thing to say to someone when you are clearly making a pass at them (laughs) I wouldn't know what that's like um like if if we want to like really engage with this author, like sure, I guess Catherine Deneuve's character I would describe as bisexual. I don't think like her sexuality is like the conflict that it is in the movie. The conflict in the movie is Susan Sarandon's sexuality, yeah. um, and that is some lesbian shit. The the, the stuff that she's going through. <laughs> I mean, also, when I watch Catherine and David Bowie kiss, that's still lesbian to me. (laughs) So that was the joke I was going to make, which I've made this unlocked, but it'll be here on a podcast of I've known just a lot of lesbians who have the exact same gender as David Bowie. So um, (laughs) you literally said that. And I have a very, very, very fraught relationship with the word uh, lesbian. Uh, And as soon as you said that, I was like, you know, that might be me. That might be, like, <laughs> lesbian with the gender of David Bowie. I could... That might be me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, so the other one that I sent you here was... So a lot of what I was finding in terms of, like, academic stuff talking about this is a lot of the, the general stuff that you um, find with vampires. So there's definitely queer readings, although I was kind of disappointed that, like the dominant one seems to be this bisexual erasure one um, because come on, there are more interesting queer readings to do. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that came up is there's like, definitely I found various Marxist things where they're talking about like the way that this film is constructing like a sense of bourgeois um, and how that's like specifically being constructed here as opposed to the book where the book is like far more focused on it, but is also focused on like scenes in the city and like the city life of New York City, whereas this movie is, like, very, 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 um, like, most of it is interior shots, um, and it, mm-hmm. it is, like, far more, 
based on the the abstracts and the one like brief article that I read a little bit more of because it seemed interesting is like far more focused in on somewhat intimate but also there's like a lot of weird cavernous spaces within this New York apartment building uh that this woman <laughs> I want to talk about this <laughs> yeah um but the other and then the, the the final one that that comes up with um vampires a lot is some of this like drug addiction um that kind of perspective which came up a little bit with this film it seemed to come up a little bit less than some of the other ones but i i think it is still there um just like especially with susan sarandon's like early transformation into a vampire um mm-hmm. But this other one that I found was just, so it's called A Sharp Sweet Tooth, Vampires, Junk Food, and Dangerous Appetites in the Lost Boys and the Hunger. Um, and it's making this case that that essentially vampire movies in the 80s are about um, like eating Big Macs and sodas and these like things that should satisfy hunger, but are also like full of all of these like fats. This was a really like I saw this one. And I just got like mad because one, I was just like, this is some like weird obesity shit yeah. that like just feels bad to me. Um, but also I've now watched this movie and People aren't munching on chips or devouring Big Macs anywhere. <laughs> there, there is, there is one scene that I noticed this time because I wondered if it was like an early product placement thing, where Susan Sarandon's husband is eating a Big Mac. One scene, <laughs> but he doesn't even become a vamp anyway. He's not the vampire <laughs> in the movie. <laughs> and I say this as someone who's a big fan of internet art of anime girls eating Big Macs and like burgers. <laughs> so um, <laughs> it, is a, it is a genre of drawings of anime girls that exists on the internet and that I'm a fan of. Um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so I, I want to quick call out a few essays that I did see and I couldn't find extended versions of these, um, but they did they were interesting enough that I, if I could find them, um, I would probably look into them more. Uh, so one of them was just called lesbians who bite. Um, and it's, it seemed kind of, it was like talking about objection, which is this whole, if people want to know about objection, listen to our Evangelion podcasts. Um, we're going to talk about objection a lot. I'm not going to get into it right now. (laughs) Um, the other one, this is the one that like really, really just massaged my knee of brain. Lesbian bodies in the age of post-mechanical reproduction. Like, hell yeah, give me that Benny Me shit. <laughs> Did you write that? <laughs> no. <laughs> I should have, though. Why didn't I write this? Um, um, yeah, so if any listeners have, like, a subscription to, like, have access to something through a university or whatever, send me those two articles, please. So, I read them. <laughs> circling back to something you were talking about in there, um... One of the things that I think both of us pay a lot of attention to while watching movies is like sets and fashion and um the set there's one main set there's a couple other sets but there's like one main set in this movie that I think is fucking incredible um well okay there's one apartment and I think there are maybe like a couple sets that comprise the apartment 
And seemingly, Catherine Deneuve's character owns a whole <laughs> ass, uh, like, four-story apartment with an yeah. attic in Upper Manhattan with, like, marble walls and marble floors and the biggest fucking piano you've ever seen, and she doesn't have a job, and it... it it's never explained where her money comes from or goes to because she's like thousands of years old and you just accrue money, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> she, there's a scene where she gets up out of bed to answer the door um, to, and Susan Sarandon is at the door and like, she already has the like perfect updo of like the, the sort of like, high society manhattan woman of this time and she has like the perfect eyeshadow and the most perfect red lipstick you've ever seen and the perfect blush to go with it like there's a sort of like um like bourgeois society is like is this like sort of perfection and and cleanliness and there's no help here either there's no like a lot of these a lot of movies like this um hint at the existence of of help but don't uh try to like push those things to the side not really acknowledge them this is a movie where like everything is pristine just by magic because when you're rich like you just magic happens and you have all of these beautiful things and like everything is dusted and perfect (laughs) all the time (laughs) It's amazing. Yeah, except when you need it to be, like, dramatically, like, the dust is in the air, so that, mm-hmm. so as to create, like, a fogging effect. <laughs> yeah, the other thing about, the, like, like, the big, like, the, uh, the a couple of the, like, um, sets on the main floor of the apartment do this, like, incredible thing where the windows are clearly fake, and they've got like huge fuck off floodlights positioned right outside of them that make it look like the sun is always shining but is like a perfect white light or like a whitish blue light and not you know like what the sun looks like especially in new york city you know (laughs) um and so like it it has this like amazing effect where there's a ton of quote-unquote natural light in every scene and also, it is the fakest natural light you will ever see in a movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, one thing I, I did find really interesting with this film, especially, like, with my knowledge of just the various forms of vampires, was that thing that you were hitting on of, like, they are, like, existing in some sort of, like, bourgeois opulence, and yet... This really does not seem to be a film that's, like, concerned with that broadly. Like, it's, like, using the aesthetics of it, but it is not about, like... Like, we don't see them really juxtaposed against, like, working-class people in a way that, like, could further pull out this, like, certain Marxist... Everybody loves the vamp... Or the uh, wizard quote of Marx, but... Marx had some vampire quotes too. Um, this like fully Marxist like vampire quote reading, um, and it, it is almost <laughs> this like it, it is almost the dream of just existing 
like there's a certain thing like i think what this film is more concerned about in terms of especially we're talking about like what is the like queer theory stuff happening here is like what is queer temporality or like what is like how do how does queerness break like a heterosexual understanding of space and time because mm-hmm. this is a film that is like so concerned with one like the passage of time both in terms of how the the film like continues to break up the passage of time by doing weird intercutting like there'll be just sudden flashbacks to like here's a scene from the past that just intrudes into the scene um for mm-hmm. like a split second um there's so much of like here's a montage of just various images that are happening unclear if it's concurrently or if they're just being brought together because of like thematic significance um and so like a lot of that is is disrupting time and then i think also not to quite the same extent as um like one of my favorite things about sonatina is just how much it like denies any kind of establishing shot and this movie's not fully to that extent but does still have moments that are like breaking up the the physical space to like construct some sort of filmic space instead um like there's a scene earlier i don't even remember what david bowie was seemingly watching but was like clearly not in the room but they were like Mm -hmm. cutting between what was happening in david bowie as if he was like there in the Mm -hmm. room watching it um and i think this is a lot of like how are we breaking down space and time in a way that's like suggesting some sort of like queerness is a thing that like breaks free from this purely linear successionist like view of this is what time is. And this is like what space is like you are a nuclear family that has children that like pass down and it like continues. Like this is like the concept of heterosexual futurity is like you have a child that passes Mm -hmm. on your blood and your line. Um, And this is like something that is like, often in a way creating these weird microcosms where it almost just feels like time has like stopped moving or where like time has become unmoored from like normal senses of time <laughs> where mm-hmm. it's just like, there's this weird apartment where you just go and time is and space is fucky. <laughs> and then you fuck a, a vampire lady. Um. Right. And like, as you're fucking this vampire lady, like these sort of like abstract, like flashes of like basically just like, I know how they do this, but I don't, I, I, or I've seen how images like this are made, but I don't actually know. But like, basically there's like a bunch of like red splotches on like the, on the film itself, you know, yeah. like they're not shooting anything. There's just like red splotches on like, um, the frames of the, uh, of the, of the film. And so like, like those sorts of like weird like abstract like things just like inaugurate you into queerness and, and now like you exist in this place where time doesn't happen you know mm-hmm. um, and th- now you have to kill your husband because uh you can just never be satisfied uh yeah. with him again because he's gonna like continue pushing you towards some sort of futurity that involves mm-hmm. your death whereas here mm-hmm. you get to be like perfectly like continuous in the state of of queer rapture with your lover so Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and Um, and queer rapture with just like as many lovers as you want you know (laughs) yeah (laughs) like that is very much part of the movie too i think um um what else i feel like i had another thing to touch on um 
Oh, I mentioned fashion just because like what a this this doesn't matter. This does not matter at all. One of my favorite little fashion moments in this movie is that uh Susan Sarandon has lesbian sex one time and buys like a like a fake leather, fake gold coat. <laughs> she just walked into the nearest store and said, Give me your gayest coat. <laughs> I just fucked a woman. <laughs> It's one of my favorite jackets I've ever seen in a movie. <laughs> uh, anyway, I thought this was supposed to be a horror movie. I mean, it was... <laughs> there. Um... <laughs> this is just really romantic weird. comedy to me. <laughs> <laughs> the moment that it comes closest to horror is like... Um... The moment that it comes closest to horror is, uh, uh, like, Susan Sarandon doesn't want to be a vampire, and so she stabs herself, and the two women, like, hit the floor as, like, blood is spraying everywhere, and, and um, Catherine Deneuve is, like, trying to save her, and, like, I think the movie is going for horror there, and, and I, I'll just... That's not what I got from that. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds hot. I don't know. <laughs> no, the the scariest part to me was where it was just like all of her dead lovers coming out of the crypts. I was just like, oh, this is scary. There's no blood anywhere. Look at them. They're completely <laughs> devoid of blood. <laughs> What's the point? <laughs> this isn't sexy. <laughs> yeah, there's like a little bit of like story stuff that I'm like a little unclear on where... um None of her previous lovers did die. It's just that they got so old and decrepit that they couldn't, like, be anymore. And so she, like, they're fucking, <laughs> like, they're the fucking hoeed from Elantris. And she shoves them in coffins and puts them in the corner. <laughs> um, yeah, I did. I did. Um, so as part of my, like, falling into a hole of looking up academic articles, um, I did see some things that like talked about the the difference in the ending compared to the book. Um, and one of the things that became clear to me from that that I don't think is actually clear in the the movie is that in the book, it's like really heavily implied that um Catherine, whatever the vampire's name, Miriam, um, mm-hmm. that she is like basically the last true vampire. And so everybody else is a thrall, which means that they, like, have extended life, but they are not immortal like she is. Um, And so they all eventually reach this point where they, like, reach the end of the extended life. And then she keeps them all, like, as corpses in Mm -hmm. her in her home. Um, And the the movie or the book ends with like essentially this reasserting of straightness where Sarah, who's like Susan Sarandon's character in this um, basically like goes back to just being like a married woman at the end. Oh, weird. <laughs> which it, which is like, ends. yeah, that is extremely not how the movie ends. And what happens in the movie, it, like what the stuff that I was reading was saying, what's implied is that, essentially there's like what it, what is happening in the final scene is that actually Susan Sarandon has like successfully 
stolen like has successfully become the next vampire and is no longer just a thrall um and so what then happens is that like because of that there can only be one true vampire or whatever like there's some filmic thing that's happening where the she has to be the one now um to put it in the parlance of like some fans it's a little bit of a ghoulin situation of like this woman steals the identity of another woman um but basically like and, you know, there can only be one. There has to be the ghoul, and the ghoul is, like, a single entity. So, you know, like, <laughs> Susan Sarandon becomes the true vampire who is going to, like, live forever. And so mm-hmm. then all of the previous thralls, like, in their final act, destroy, like, the person who m- made them thralls and then die. <laughs> the The last ten minutes of this movie really, be- like... The whole movie is not terribly concerned with, like, plot as much as just, yeah. like, people staring out windows and looking forlorn. <laughs> um, but the last ten minutes of this movie really abandon any pretense that, like, this is a film with plot. Because, like, the last thing that happens in the movie is, like, just metaphor as uh, Susan Sarandon is now living the perfect, beautiful life of the bourgeois lesbian uh, lady uh, with, like... Like, she's she's got the like, um, not quite as fancy like high rise Manhattan apartment, uh, and she's got like the blonde like draped over her arm as she like stands in some billowy curtains and looks out over the skyline, um, and but as she's looking out over the skyline, you just keep cutting to like the coffin that clearly um miriam miriam is in um and so like uh i've never i I never until you explained it just now knew what like plot was happening there but i did know like metaphorically like what's happening is that she's learned to live uh you know her best gay life without uh the person who kind of inducted her into gay life (laughs) yeah yeah i think like like this is a thing that i read with the, the some of the articles and then i watched it and i was like like i guess that's how but it just also showcases how little i think both of us like really care about that aspect of plot because when i actually watched it i was just like oh yeah like you do have like the queer lover who initiates you into something and then you just kind of move on <laughs> yeah that is just how it works um, yeah <laughs> So what happened to me? I don't know. Like, yeah, that that makes sense to me. <laughs> um. Oh, yeah. Another like thing eternal, I was gonna mention. eternal youth does not necessarily mean that you are like living the the life you used to for eternity. Like, you yeah. can be youthful forever and also live a different life than you were. <laughs> yeah. Um. The other thing I was gonna mention, just because, especially the movie that we watched previously was The Third Man. Uh, which is just such a like beautifully shot black and white film. Um, also, incredible amount of location shooting, which like the the beauty of the shadow and light that they get while doing it literally literally on location without it being like sets where they can fully control it is just mind blowing to me. Um, yeah, for real. But this film, like, there was color in it, but it it definitely had a lot of this same interplay with light and shadow that I feel like sometimes you fall away with when it comes to color film. Um, like the ornate stairwell here 
part of what makes it so like ornate and beautiful is that there's this like raw iron working on it and then the light mm-hmm. shines through and you get the like shadow of it projected on the wall um mm-hmm. and on the people who are going up and down it and like that is just a, a i mean it is like a thing that is i think more often deployed with horror still but um not with like a lot of slasher horror right like this is like pulling mm-hmm. on some of that almost like Dr. Caligari is like one of the most extreme examples of this because it is such a constructed set where they are like literally painting shadows and things. Right. Um, but like the interplay of light and shadow, I think part, like a lot of early cinema, especially like silent cinema also did horror because I think this idea of like, here's the shadows and the light and the way that they're interplaying has like some sort of direct resonance with a lot of what happens in the horror where it's not surprising that they pulled it out here, but it, it was still very nice to just be like, Oh, this is a movie in the eighties that also just really does light and shadow. Well, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. One of my, probably my favorite silent film is, uh, is, uh, Dreyer's vampire. And I hadn't thought about it, but I think this movie is like pulling on vampire a little bit. Yeah. Um, I still don't know why you didn't want to watch Less Vampires. <laughs> oh, we could watch Less Vampires. Oh, wait, no, that's like a f- seven-hour movie or something, right? I mean, yeah, <laughs> technically it was like a serial film, so it's not. It's very easy to watch it in chunks. It's <laughs> okay. But there's also... um, there's the there's that like uh there's a Fritz uh Lang movie that I really want to watch that's also like serialized, and so it ends up being like five hours when people. It's one of the Dr. Mabuse movies, I think. Um, yeah. Anyway. Um, um, I think... I, I had a thought and then I immediately lost it, but... I was gonna... I also had a thought that I lost. I want to do... I have one segment idea for this podcast. Yeah. Um. Can we get... Give me a letter grade, A, B, C, D, F, on the staircase in this movie. For for people who don't know, um, we'll just I just wanted to you just kind of described the staircase in this movie. I will also just let everybody know that um the two big staircase scenes I think are um I think Catherine Deneuve is like slowly walking down and like erotically sexily looking at Susan Sarandon's character standing in the foyer of this high-rise apartment building and then the other big staircase scene is like um the thralls all crawling up out of their coffins and throwing her the fuck down (laughs) yeah and it's it's a spiral staircase it's it's got like kind of the same thing that vertigo has I guess we have to talk about vertigo at some point on this podcast but I don't really like vertigo um, yeah, it's it's fine. We we won't do it then. Uh despite it being extremely a staircase movie. Yeah. Um <laughs> It's got it's got the same kind of vertigo spiral staircase and they just throw her right down the center of it. Yeah. And it's like narrow enough that her like body is like colliding with the the railings like on both sides. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. Yeah. Um are are we both doing a letter rating here? Yeah, I I'm going to give this I'm I'm torn because I want to give it an A for looks, but I feel like 
other than her getting thrown down the staircase, not used like not the most dramatically used staircase we've seen you know i feel like there's yeah. a lot of scenes where they're at the bottom and then they're in the attic and you don't get anybody like somberly moving along the stairwell as they think about something so yeah like i i think it i think this is a b for me in yeah. part be- in part because we just watched like last week the third man and that is such like the the stairwells in that are a mm-hmm. like yes. they're used so well um yes. and this one like i i honestly if i feel like if it wasn't for the shadows from like the the wrought iron that get projected mm-hmm. i don't even know if it would be a b for me but that like that really like that's the part that's like i debated a for a little bit because it just looks so good yeah um, i think i think that maybe these are like this is like a C stairwell elevated to a B by those good shadows. Um, yeah, the cinematography the thing, really did did the hard work here. I think the other thing that like well, I'm comparing this against in my head, like just to give people like a baseline, and this is not a very well known movie, so I'm gonna have to like post a screenshot of, so people know what it is. But like we just watched uh, Pale Flower, I think two or three weeks oh ago. Oh my god! Yeah, which just has the best stairwell scene and it's it's the it was the movie that made me think about this because it's like he's walking up the stairwell and you know what's gonna happen next as, as he the like, literal gets to... climax of the movie is a stairwell <laughs> and it's just it's fucking incredible and so like that's that's like the a plus in my brain and so yeah. that's like i think this is a i think the hunger has a c that is elevated to a b by good like light and shadow so yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, pale flower is S rank. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no. We should have a, we should have an S rank because we're gamers. <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> we just did like the gayest first movie that we could do for this. <laughs> I did. So you asked me to pick a movie, and, and I just picked one because I was like, oh, this kind of like fits like what we like talking about with movies. And then also independently I had in my head, I was like, oh, yeah, we wanted to start that podcast. I didn't think about how I (laughs) was going to start the podcast with a movie where um, two women just like fall to the floor covered in each other's blood at some point. (laughs) Yeah. You you didn't think that one through, huh? No. Um, yeah, we very nearly did this with the third man. We would have if I wasn't so damn sleepy last week. We absolutely yeah. would have started with the third man last week. We could still do a podcast about the third man. We might do it next week. I don't know. Yeah, we'll we'll see. Um, I will just say, third man, incredibly gay film. Um, so gay, so fucking gay. If you don't, if you've watched the third man and you're like, that didn't seem gay, gay to me. I'm sorry, you're straight. <laughs> it's just a gay movie about gay people. <laughs> I wanted the, to say the something, literal but I'm producer just of the film for, knew it was gay. <laughs> I mean, I, I want to say something, but I will just save it for the potential of a third man podcast somewhere. I feel like if we were doing a better podcast, we would say like, hey. Uh, so next time we're going to be watching blah, blah, blah. 
and maybe we will start doing that in the future but i don't want to pick a movie right now i don't want to yeah. have to like go through i mean Unless i, I we... did i did you make know. a spreadsheet but you did yeah you did. we could pick a movie um... off the spreadsheet we put like six bergman movies on the mo- on the list and i i'm kind of in the mood to watch a bergman movie so we could do bergman yeah um, we could do Shin Megami Tensei. <laughs> That's a Bergman movie, right? Yeah. <laughs> sure. Uh, I'm trying to f- fucking scroll up through and find the spreadsheet. And I think he pinned it and I'm just being a dumbass. I'm also trying to find it because I'm... Here we go. Here we go. We had a different name for the podcast back when we were... Uh, when we made this spreadsheet, so that's yeah. why I was having trouble finding it. Um. Okay, so we could do most of these are your picks, so like I'm open to whatever, especially since I picked this very first one. Um, and I vaguely want to talk about Bergman, but like there's time enough to talk about Bergman. So. Yeah. If you want to, um, since I picked this one, if you want to pick the next one, you can for sure. There's a part of me that's just like, do it, do I make you watch No Regrets for our youth right now? Sure. <laughs> I don't um, know what that is. So No Regrets for Our Youth was a very early film by uh, Akira Kurosawa. Um, so this was 1946. So this is like a full four years before Rashomon, which is what, Mm -hmm. you know, I think a lot of people know as like one of the big things for Kurosawa. Um, It is not a Jidaigeki. It's not like one of the ones that is um, set in like feudal Japan. It is a, a, like fairly contemporaneous um, story and it's a romance film. Um, I know you're a fan of romances, so I think it, it'll be fun for that. And I, I have a note here that I put, which is just Kurosawa doing a romance film about how sexy communists are and how girls just want to fuck fiery communists because they're sexy as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is a film that I have not watched since undergrad, and I, I wonder if some of my opinion of it will have changed. Um, it's definitely, I think, my favorite of like early Kurosawa and... Like, a lot of my other Kurosawa that is, like, contemporaneous, like, this is modern Japan stuff, um, was, like, it's, like, Ikaru and some of his, like, much later stuff. Um, and yeah. so, for, like, that early period, I just think it's a very, it's an interesting film to see, like, I'm assuming you've watched a certain amount of Kurosawa, but I don't know how much you've watched of, like... I have seen, I've seen Seven Samurai, Throne of Blood, Yojimbo, and then High and Low is the one non-samurai Kurosawa film I've seen, which High and Low fucking whips. It's a little too long, but it's fucking good. It's good, and Toshiro Mifune is sexy as fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Watching, so High and Low being, I'd seen Toshiro Mifune in, um a couple of these samurai movies and so seeing him 
And he's playing pretty different characters in all three of those movies, but seeing him play yet another totally different character, I was like, is he just like the best actor who ever lived? (laughs) Like, (laughs) Um, the, so I, I, a thing about me is that I know a lot about Akira Kurosawa. He was like one of my favorite directors. Also, I share a birthday with him, um, which you thought was kind of cool. Emily did not. (laughs) <laughs> but um but yeah a, a big thing that he said was so uh Takashi Shimura who is like I don't know if you I guess you said you hadn't seen Ikeru um no. he is like the main character in Ikeru um but also is in like Rashomon Seven Samurai um he is God, I don't know how well you know the Seven Samurai I I so I have seen it once when I was sixteen, and it is still one of my favorite movies. But um, I don't I don't like know it inside and out like some people do. Yeah, Seven Samurai. I will just say is like the one film that like absolutely earned its runtime. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. It helps that it has an intermission yeah, me... too. Like yeah, um, but it is like one of the few films that is as long as that is uh that i feel like is totally justified in being that length yeah so i, I just sent you a, a picture of that's i think from seven samurai oh yeah of takashi shimura um he so kurosawa often said like two of his favorite actors was so takashi shimura was really really good at like extremely embodying a character and like getting a lot of the nuance over time of a character and like having just like an extreme range of different people that he could even be and embody. Like if you just search for him, you'll see a bunch of images of him from movies where some of them, he looks drastically different. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not like makeup. It's just like literally how he's like carrying himself. Um, Whereas Toshiro Mifune, his whole thing was just like, he could do, he could express so much in like a single gesture or a single facial expression. Like he had such great control over his body in that way. Um, And that's part of what like makes Mifune so sexy to me is that he can just like move his hand in a way that just like expresses something. And you're just like, beautiful, beautiful. Give me more of this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, I guess we'll, we'll do no regrets for our youth unless you have objections. No, let's go. Neither of these let's... actors are in that. This is just a complete tangent. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, fucking next time, let's tighten it up. Too many tangents on this episode. I don't, I don't, I hate when podcasts go on tangents. <laughs> um, don't ever listen to Ghost Dive. <laughs> um, yeah, oh, wait, actually, fun. Takashi Shimura is in, I just looked it up. Takashi Shimura is in No Grass for a Youth. Maybe he's just very young. I don't, do not remember him being in it. Anyway, where can people find you online? Um, they can find me at Garf Red Aloud on Twitter. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm always going to enjoy doing the joke of saying that one first. Um, but now my, my main Twitter account is at FoxMomNia. Uh, also, uh, I listen to Ghost Divers, I guess. Listen to Ghost Divers. It's a good podcast. I'll be on it. I have been yeah. on it and will continue to be on it. Yeah, you're doing all of Ray Earth with me. 
Yeah. And Connor. Connor is there too. <laughs> Connor Connor's so... always doing all of everything with me. <laughs> you made it so like you'll be doing all of Ray Earth with me. Like it's just like it is a solo podcast until I decided to show up. <laughs> just me talking to a mic for four hours straight about Evangelion. <laughs> I think that would be the worst podcast ever. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it would be. <laughs> Um, a thing that I, I often say is like one of the reasons why Ghost Divers is not short and concise is if I wanted to have a really short and concise like take on uh anime or something, I wouldn't record a podcast. I would just write an article. <laughs> yeah, so this is for me like the I'm gonna totally go off on a tangent in the middle of plugs. Like I hate tangents. <laughs> <laughs> Shut the fuck up. Um, so, like, a lot of YouTube creators will, like, do these, like, fucking hour, 45-minute videos. I have a thing or you tweet every time one of these comes out that's just, like, you can't make a YouTube essay that's longer than the seventh seal. (laughs) (laughs) And I believe that in my heart. Like, you cannot be making YouTube essays about why Bloodborne is good that are longer than, like... Bergman figuring out life and death. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So anyway, where can people find you, Autumn? <laughs> no, I want to complain for a second. Okay. The, the point I was making was just that, like, I, I, I like podcasts as a medium better because they are like fundamentally collaborative. Like, and it's about you and I, like, working together to like talk about and understand the hunger, and not just like me like fucking like demanding attention and import because i can talk about fucking tokideki memorial for six hours um (laughs) i thought i hope i said that right um like i don't whatever i'm venting now it's 11 30 let's wrap this up you find me on twitter at autumnal underscore coffee you can find my other podcasts at exportodd.io if you like me talking about movies, um, it's a pretty different podcast, but you can go listen to And Then an Aeroplane by going to abnormalmapping.com slash aeroplane, where Em and I watched every single Studio Ghibli film. Uh, we've got one last episode coming up about the uh, a Ghibli documentary um, that we will be recording once we're like 6% less mentally ill. Um, so... <laughs> um look forward to that but yeah that is like if you want to hear me podcast about every single ghibli film that has come out you can go to uh, abnormalmapping.com so yeah yeah i I listened to that entire podcast in like two weeks it's It's a good podcast (laughs) it's good and it's fucking tight as hell like we just get in we do like a 45 minute podcast we don't really tangent that much and we get out (laughs) (laughs) couldn't be me I feel we kept it to like an hour and change. I'm yeah. really impressed at us. I thought this would be like a 90 minute podcast. <laughs> <laughs> the The real thing with Ghost Divers is not that we like talk that long. It's that we're like literally talking about six to eight episodes of an anime That's most true. of the time. I feel like the amount of time that you would spend sitting and listening to like a full season of Gundam on Great Gundam Project might actually be longer than the amount of time we will record talking about something. So, um, 
We just present it differently. That's all. And it is more intrusive into your life. So I still understand <laughs> it. <laughs> I only bellyache about the length because I'm going to be on it. <laughs> Listening to it, it's great. <laughs> I mean, you weren't bellyaching when I was on Hot Singles and we went for like three and a half hours or whatever the fuck. But so. my legs were because I was sitting on the damn floor for that whole thing. <laughs> oh my, I forgot about that. <laughs> you, you angel. That's right. Shower me in praise. <laughs> are we are we wrapping up this podcast or are we just praising each other now? <laughs> We're fucking, do we do we have a sign off? I didn't think about this until now. I mean, I still don't have a sign off for Ghost Divers. I just say bye. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for stopping. Bye. You can't just do important if true on everything.
Hello, Lugos is dead. 